they say that this world is better than the last. I wouldn't know. I have no way of living in the past. Where once there was a garden, the streets of overflow. From the Golden Gate to the East Block States, you can hear creation groan. There is a shining beacon out across the amber waves. It lies hidden on the teeming shores beneath the burned-out Chevrolets and the eyes that scattered high-rise hope across the brooded plain. See the TVs glowing in the projects through the greasy window panes. Baby, it's a long. Baby, it's a long way down. Baby, it's a long. Baby, it's a long way to fall. Baby, it's a long. Baby, it's a long way down. Baby, it's a long. Baby, it's a big world after all. Purple Mountain's majesty has ratings that are poor. History bows to coverage, moderation bows to more. The far side of the ocean is the far side of the tracks. All God's children learn to build and learn to watch their backs. There are felons out in the prison yard, imagining their release. And the free thank God for the atom bomb. Keeper of the peace. Another day, another chance to curse away the doubt. Another night, another thousand points of light go out. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way down. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way to fall. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way down. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a big world after all. Do that again. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way down. Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way to fall. Baby, it's a long. Baby, it's a long way down. Baby, it's a long. Baby, it's a big world after all. Hypnotized and shuttled in the limousine of hate. Watching the scenery shattering the brittle jaws of fate. Well, baby, I'm just another fifth. Yet I don't make the rules. I'd break a whip a thought it would do you some good. Diggers and the bankers, the architects and the fools, got to work and you can't stop them. With tears and golden rules, it's a race to stay alive, baby. It's lawyers, tax and steel to the life that you are living is. The thing you never feel Hey, baby, see that this world 
is better than the last I wouldn't know I have no way of living in the past Well, once there was a garden The streets have overflowed From the golden gates to the east block states You can hear creation grow Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way down Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way to fall Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a long way down Baby, it's a long, baby, it's a big world after all Thank you, Mark. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Emmaus Way. Definitely Emmaus Way with a different visual for tonight. I uh, want to say, hey, I want to start first with a huge thank you. I, I think there's a few people from uh, Duke Memorial here. Thank you very much for letting us inhabit your space, your, your kind of worshiping home, the place that you reside. Uh, you know, most of you guys know I've been on a couple churches before Emmaus Way, and I can tell you that near the absolute bottom of the list, somewhere around torture, is uh, welcoming outside groups to use your space because it is just complicated. It, it, it takes extra effort. It's, it's hard for churches to do. So Duke Memorial is obviously a very gracious place for letting us be in this space and kind of imagine how it works for Emmaus Way. Uh, some of you also want to say, uh, I think Emmaus Way has been in three locations. Uh, so you guys know we started in the loft above Francesca's, and then we were on um, Mangum Street, uh, right by City Hall, and uh, for I think that covers about five years, uh, and then four years at at, uh, at the Reality Center. And I also remember with every one of those moves, we had a kind of a dry run, and it was a huge amount of work to get stuff somewhere else. So I know there's probably a lot of people here who did some stuff between one and five today that you don't normally do. So thank you very, very much for the work that went into this. And Mark, who's our lead artist, uh, kind of you know, making music and making what we do happen in a different space. I know that's always difficult to do as well. So thank you to Duke Memorial and thank you guys for uh, just kind of enjoying this wonderful space with us tonight. Emmaus Way, you guys know this, but we have a lot of guests tonight, is a community that one of the things that we imagine ourselves doing is we imagine God working redemptively, recreatively, wonderfully in this space, in in this community in Durham. And one of the things that Emmaus Way tries desperately to do is to participate in that work. We understand very clearly that we don't author that work, we don't invent that work, but we do believe very strongly that God is redemptively at work, and we try to find traces of that work and join in. And a lot of our life in this space is is that type of thing where missional partnerships, uh, the, the way this community operates is discerning and listening and, and trying to be a part of that redemptive work. So that's kind of who we are as a community. Just a couple quick things. We say these every week. Uh, uh, one of the things that's significant to the life of our body besides uh, uh, the things that we do missionally and politically in the community are just smaller gatherings of us. Uh, there's a variety of home groups that meet. And if you're interested in one of those, Elizabeth Eford right here can tell you about that. Um, if you 
you are interested in our pub group that meets on Thursday nights. Uh, Dan Rhodes is speaking tonight as our pub guru. Uh, people participate that in a couple ways. Some people show, obviously, but we also have an article that goes out every week and people kind of read along with us as well. And so if you're interested in that, ask Dan and he can put you on the list for that. Announcements-wise, there's not a huge amount of stuff that I wanted to mention, but I do want to mention that one of our partnerships that's near and dear to us is Durham Can uh, uh, Congregations, Associations, and Neighborhoods. It's a local grassroots political organizing community that works for issues of voice and justice in our community and represents very beautifully the whole community of Durham. Uh, there's really no one excluded from, from Durham Can and, and is deeply represented. Uh, we have a delegates assembly, which is usually significant to the organization of our agenda, kind of our forward working agenda for the next year or two. And that delegates assembly is next Sunday, 3 o'clock, I think Judea Reform, is that does that sound right? So Judea Reform. And you guys know Durham Can works differently than the way we work. We never tell you to do anything. But, uh, but Durham Can kind of works around the model that pastors kind of tell how many people are going to show up. And I think we've promised five to, five to seven people. And if they're going to show up, who would they tell? You, Dan? or So tell Dan. Uh, we are looking to have five to seven people at 3 o'clock at Judea Reform if we, if we can pull that off. So, again, it's a total delight to be in this space. Thank you again to uh, Duke Memorial, and thank you for Josh and Mark and people on our, our team that have sure have worked really hard this afternoon while I sat and watched the soccer game. Uh, so thank you guys for, for, for doing that, and I think Mark's going to continue to lead us in our songs of preparation. Oh, community song. That's exactly right. That's a new, uh, new thing. And I know for a fact that I'm not leading that. So, <laughs> so yes. All right. I'll lead us in the community song. Lord, we need a new redemption song. Lord, we've tried. It seems to come out wrong. Won't you help us, please, help us just to sing along a new redemption song, a new redemption song. Lord, we need a new redemption day. All our worries keep getting. Won't you help us, please, help us find the words to pray, to bring redemption day, to bring redemption day. Lord, we need a new redemption song. Lord, we try. Just seems to come out wrong. Won't you help us, please? Help us just to sing along a new redemption song. A new redemption song.
Since we're talking about the incarnation tonight, uh, as we sort of continue our series on the body, I thought this was a song that oftentimes when we talk about the incarnation, we're, it's, it's hard for us to understand what that means because we sort of don't take carnality sort of very seriously in terms of the embodiment of living in a difficult world where things don't always work out how we think they're supposed to or how they're going to. And so this is a song that I thought was a good uh, a good way to take us into that space. Red Dirt Girl. Me and my best friend Lillian Her blue tiger hound dog Gideon Sitting on the front porch in the shade, singing every song that the radio played, waiting for the Alabama sun to go down to red dirt girls in a red dirt town, me and Lillian. Just across the line and a little southeast of Meridian. Brother, I remember back when he was fixing up a 49 Indian. He told her little sister, gonna ride the wind up around the moon and I'm back again. He never got farther than Vietnam. I was standing there with her when the telegram come for Lillian. And now he's lying somewhere about a million miles from Meridian. Say there's not much hope for a red dirt girl Somewhere out there is a great big world That's where I'm bound And the stars might fall on Alabama But one of these days I'm gonna swing by Hammer Town Away from this red dirt town Gonna make a joyful sound She grew up tall and she grew up thin She buried that old dog Gideon By a crayon myrtle bush in the back of the yard Her daddy turned mean and her mama leaned hard Got in trouble with a boy from town And she figured that she might as well settle down So she dug right in Across the red dirt line Just a little southeast from Meridian She tried hard to love him, but it never did take It's just another way for the heart to break And so she learned to bend But one thing they don't tell you about the blues when you got them You keep on falling cause there ain't no bottom There ain't no end At least not for Lillian Nobody knows when she started her skid She was only 27 but she had five kids Could have been the whiskey, could have been the pills Could have been the dream she was trying to kill There won't be a mention in the news of the world About the life and the death of a red dirt girl named Lillian 
never got any further across the line, the meridian. Now the stars still fall on Alabama The night she finally laid that hammer down Without a sound In the red dirt crown My head has been wound too tight I've been standing on the edge After picking a fight with you Sometimes my world Seems so damn small I can't think of nothing Except for me at all And my thoughts surround me Like a prison wall That's true I want to get closer To you now I want to get closer To you now Takes all my strength to slow myself down My thoughts are screaming, I can't hear a sound Sometimes I wish there was no one around but you Oh, and tell me that you know what I'm talking about Sometimes you're the same, like confusion and doubt Then it hurts so bad, I just want to shout I'm through I want to get closer to you now 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 Now please forgive these things I might have said They come from my frustration, not my head Last thing that I want to do is create a distance between me and you. I want to get closer to you now. I want to get closer to you now. I want to get closer. I want to get closer to you now The other seems to be two states of mind One is visionary, other blind This place that we can hope to find Is to meet somewhere in between Well, the night air is pulling me back a bit To 
just when I thought I was about to quit Trying to get a candle in helps me see what can't be seen I want to get closer to you now I want to get closer to you now I want to get closer to you now I want to get closer I wanna get closer to you now. I wanna get closer to you now. I wanna get closer to you now. I wanna get Thanks, guys. Uh, we are, or Tim kicked us off last week on a uh, series on the body that we are just beginning. And uh, tonight we're going to move into the incarnation to looking at uh, Jesus and the figure of Jesus. And uh, to some extent, I think those two songs, The Red Dirt Girl and Closer, uh, we always think in a maze way of the music as kind of beginning the conversation, creating the conversation. Music is intertwined with a lot of our lives. A lot of us love music. Um, and the way that I think the selection of those songs, Mark, was perfect in the sense of creating in the first one a deep texture for the lives that sometimes in congregations are left behind. You think you have to leave them at the door when you come in, but creating the kind of real texture to a life uh, that is part of a, any type of real community or any type of real person. Um, and then the other one kind of talking about what does it mean to connect with with other people. So I think those will, in some sense, carry our conversation. They'll rest in the background, uh, think about those, uh, even as we're talking tonight. Um, but as is our custom, I'm going to invite you now to stand up, greet one another with a piece of Christ. Uh, there's coffee out in uh, the foyer out here, um, and the restrooms are in the back here if you need those. Um, please, if you don't know somebody sitting around you, say hi, and uh, we'll bring you back in just a minute. All right, so we're going to gather back in. As you're uh, doing that, I think uh, Jenny Nicholson's actually going to read the passage for us tonight. As you know, I, I think I just mentioned this, but we're going to be working our way, maybe meandering our way through 1 Corinthians. We're using that as a, a letter, as an epistle to kind of talk about the body. There are a lot of issues, uh, kind of themes of the body that run throughout that letter, and so... Um, we won't always go chronologically, and even tonight um, we're going to focus on the beginning, but I'll bring in uh, some stuff from the end uh, of the epistle itself. But uh, our, our main passage is 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 18-31, and Jenny's going to read that for us. First Corinthians 1, 18-31. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world does not know God through wisdom, God decided, through the foolishness of our proclamation, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jenny. So any conversation about the incarnation, which basically just a big word to talk about God becoming human, uh, obviously is going to have to focus around Jesus. So I want to get us thinking together real quick. Um, Jesus, the, that name, the person, can, can often create a stir, uh, can often create different reactions. So I want to get a sense from you. When you hear or when you're in a, a dinner party or whatever and somebody starts talking about Jesus or when you're sitting around maybe with your small group or the, the name comes up, what... what what tends to come to mind? What do you think about when the, when the name Jesus pops up or when somebody starts talking about the figure Jesus? So kind of like an Adonis with a lamb type of Jesus, you know, this kind of yeah, very beautiful kind of figure, yeah, or in a soft, you know, a soft figure to some extent. Other thoughts? Dan, I think I feel very differently depending on who I'm with when Jesus gets mentioned. I mean, I think, you know, if you're in just like a restaurant somewhere and you're having like, it's like some you know, Jesus, it feels like it rings differently than in a community like ours where we're all sort of expecting. I think you have the sense that he can be read in very different ways by different groups of people. And, and who you mention him to is maybe almost as important as, as what they're, you know. Yeah, so like when you're shouting across the house, it's very different than... than <laughs> <laughs> no, there's this, I have this strong sense of sometimes when I'm studying out at a, at a coffee shop or whatever, if I'm writing a sermon, and I have this like almost embarrassment to some extent, the kind of working through, but I don't know, this kind of evangelical baggage that you bring up and people impose their views on you. You have this sense of like, oh, look, I'm not that guy. I'm not the one who's out here sticking tracks on tables. I'm not that person. So yeah, I, I can sympathize with that, kind of depending on the context. Uh, a lot. Any other thoughts? The quote unquote American Jesus. The one that oh. loves personal freedom above anything else. 
Yeah, so with Jesus, a lot of ways it gets kind of related to maybe some national themes, some sense of, hey, you know, we are the chosen people, and Jesus is kind of a nice emblem, maybe another a flag that we can use. Uh, yeah, a lot of ways in which Jesus gets used that way. So. <laughs> Which you have to wear now this this year when it comes out. <laughs> so I was sitting, uh, you know, Tuesday night this week. I'd gotten home and uh, I was kind of lounging around as as people do. And it's you know obviously the debt ceiling phenomenon is going on and the government shutdown and all the craziest and craziness and chaos around that is happening. And so. I turned it to pretty much the only reliable news source that exists, The Daily Show, to, to figure out what's really going on and to see what the latest is. And I only caught the tail end of the show, but Stuart was interviewing the lead actress from this television show called Scandal. Um, and they were talking about the show and what all happens on the show. Now, I don't really, I don't watch the show, and so this was kind of in, uh, intriguing to me. And they were talking about kind of the roots of the show and how the writers got the idea for the show. And basically, I guess the way, the show is based on a real-life person. Uh, her name is Judy Smith, and she was a media aide in the first Bush administration. Um, and basically, the way that the plot line goes is that throughout the week, certain scenarios happen, very, basic kind of scandals come out, you know, stuff that never happens in real life, you know, like people taking money, you know, behind uh, the back doors and kind of, you know, crossing over and stabbing people in the back and, you know, hiking the Appalachian Trail when you're supposed to be, you know, uh, doing other things, you know. So, so basically when scandals like that break open, the job of this person is to go in and to kind of clean up the mess, to kind of sort it out, to fix it, to find a way to return the official, the politician, back to the message that is supposed to be the message that comes out. So how do we sweep it under the rug, make it disappear, and return to the kind of big message, the positive message that we want to put out there? This is her job. And actually, the actress was saying a lot of times throughout the week she has like a standing conference call with this woman and, and talks about, hey, you know, if this hypothetically were to happen, how would you deal with it? And she would reply and kind of say, well, this is how I, I can't tell you where I am, but here's, here's how I might reply to it in a certain sense. So this sense of scandals breaking, but trying to transition and move them underneath the carpet in order to move to a positive message. Now, unlike Judy Smith, whose job is to do that, in our passage tonight, the message for Paul is itself a scandal. You may not realize this in looking at your text. It actually pops up as the word stumbling block in the translation. But the term there is scandal. It's that the, the cross of Christ is a scandal in and of itself. That the message itself has become a scandal. What is it that is that about this cross that is so scandalous? What is it about this message that is so scandalous? So I want us to take a second to look at this together. To think about it, so looking at your passage where it talks about for the Jews demand signs and the Greek desire wisdom the Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block or a scandal to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. We're gonna jump in right there. Thinking about this together, why do you think or what why would the cross be a scandal? Why would the message of Jesus and the cross be a scandal? What would make it outrageous? What would make it seem wrong? 
I want to throw that out to you for a second. Okay, so, yeah, the very gruesome nature of, of kind of this sense of, like, whoa, this is kind of a gruesome scene to be, you know, you don't want let your kids watch, you know, axe murder shows or whatever. Like, you know, this would be a gruesome scene. I think it's pretty scandalous that um, people have their sins forgiven. I mean, somehow that flies in the face of what we think justice should be. Yeah, I mean, you talk about where people get fired up in the sense of in a courtroom, if there's a sense of forgiveness, I mean, you know, thinking of people that are standing out on street corners, you know, wanting people to get have justice served, you know, the, the notion of forgiveness in and of itself can be remarkably scandalous or seeming outrageous and wrong. I was going to say that it, you know, it says the Jews demand signs. And if I was the audience and I was told, you know, I, I want a sign. It only means I want a sign of like, yeah. Like, I want something that's going to show you. This is it. Like, here it is. You guys are, you're it now. I mean, dying on the cross is about the weakest sign that you can think of. That's what you're expecting. <laughs> yeah, you would have to think that, that what makes this in some sense so outrageous and such a, a crazy message that Paul is proclaiming is that, I mean, Yahweh, the God who set creation in order, the God who defeated Pharaoh, the God who held the sun still in the sky, the God who allowed the, the people to enter into the promised land, the God who opened up seas, would be killed, would be led as a common criminal to a death, would be bludgeoned to death, basically, would be disfigured, and that this would be the way God enters into the world. I think in some sense, yeah, there, there, this, there's a, a real stark contrast between this sense of what does power look like especially with regard to the Yahweh that they knew from their heritage, to this image of the cross. Any other thoughts? I was just reading something about the new pope and how scandalous he is, you know, and I think, you know, scandalous in a lot of ways. It kind of gave me a vision for how Jesus would be scandalous, you know, just preaching the message of love and forgiveness and, you know, and wanting to know people and love them where they were. You know, I think that is scandalous. Yeah, and I mean, Jesus never, if, when we read the text, and if we, you know, kind of, some of us have been so enculturated into it, we have this tendency to kind of read the Jesus we want, whether it's Lammy Jesus or whoever it is, we read it into the text, right? But if we stand back sometimes, Jesus is never in the place where he should be, right? He's never doing what he should be doing in a certain, he tends to break a lot of mores and break uh, a lot of the normal ways of doing things. And I think in some sense, just the person uh, strikes us as a scandalous. And certainly would have struck, uh, struck people in that culture as scandalous. Now, beyond a notion of scandal, we also get a strong sense of the foolishness that's going on here. Those two words, scandal and foolishness, are used to describe the message. They're used to describe the incarnation of Jesus' coming and his death on the cross. And one thing that you may not recognize, because I know you haven't necessarily been sitting with this all week, but... The notion or the theme of status is all through this passage. That there, the notion of kind of where rankings and where people are is, is all through. It's littered all over this passage. That in some sense, Paul, I don't know if he's, I mean, I mean what is Paul trying to do here? Is, is he like kind of the, the really bad, you know, 
self-conscious football coach who's trying to get his power by telling the, 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 the people that he's coaching, what a, you, know, you guys are nothing, you're nobodies, uh, you are absolutely nothing. Now I'm going to tell you what to do because I'm the coach. I'm going to tell you what's going on here. That how in the world is this notion of foolishness, the cross, and status, how are they connected? That if we're talking about the foolishness of the cross being something that the people of God have received, and then all this language of status, how might those two things be related? I want for us to take a moment to look at that. I'm going to give you an analogy real quick, though. Those of you that uh, saw the movie, um, and it has to be true because it was in a movie, first of all, right? Uh, Facebook. Is that the name? Was that the name of the movie? Social, Social Network. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll recognize that uh, that the whole network was started. The whole network was started uh, by genius kid Mark Zuckerberg at at Harvard as really a way to rank coeds. That, you know, the elite among us, what they're really doing on a Friday night is the same thing that they've been doing, <laughs> any of us have been doing since you were like nine years old, which is trying to figure out, you know, whose boyfriend, whose girlfriend, whose partner, who's all that kind of stuff. And the whole system itself was set up as a way to anonymously rank who the new hot freshman was that came in, a way of kind of establishing that culture. But long before Zuckerberg kind of invented this complex way of ranking people and trying to connect us to people that we normally would never be connected to, trying to improve our status to people who really uh, know that our status is very different than it normally is, the ancient world has its own way of ranking things. That status in the ancient world was of utmost importance. It was betrayed or kind of, exp uh, uh, kind of made known through eating. It was made known through clothing. It was made known through movements and location. Pretty much almost the most important thing in a person's life would have been their status. And those would have been very clearly defined. Very, very clearly defined in almost every area of life. So I want to pose this back to you. If we look at this passage and the foolishness of the cross with this language of status in the background, what, what do you think is going on there? How are those connected to one another? Uh, 
um, the, the Roman guards, I mean, all of these sources of power, people, that was their structure for society. That's what held their society together. For somebody like Jesus to be ultimately the highest possible power distance or claim to have been, and yet to be among the commoners mm-hmm. and to die as less than a commoner, there was the scandal. But it was also, I think, perceived as foolish because he gave up all of his leverage, mm-hmm. all that power leverage that he had. Well, it was just stupid for him to give that up because he could have done so much with it. Yeah, there's a way in which it, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. I mean, the actual term there, uh, not to throw a bunch of terms at you, but the term there is a root word for, like, moron. Uh, it's, it's the term that would have been basically the same as moronic. You know, to do this, this type of message, this type of activity is moronic, stupid, you know. Um, and I think there's a way in which what we're seeing here in the cross is, yeah, I mean, those of you that love Downton Abbey, you know, in the U.S. we don't have a lot of kind of class distinctions that are deeply ingrained. We, we have class distinctions, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, if you look at growing income inequalities, you know there are class distinctions in our society. But, but uh, we don't have them deeply ingrained through years and years and years and like royal blood and different things like that. But those of you that love Downton Abbey will recognize that in that sort of what to some extent, what makes the show work are the way those play against one another, the way they engage one another. And I think in some sense, you're, yeah, you're exactly right. Like, what, What's really kind of odd and foolish here is to find what, who's supposed to be on the top actually on the bottom, to some extent. Uh, who, the one who should be kind of running and ruling things is actually serving, existing on the floor. Any other thoughts? Yeah, there's a way. I mean, there's a deep culture of kind of using it in a way to kind of engage and, and, and to reflect back, kind of say, hey, you know, the type of thinking, especially in, in years throughout the last century where there seemed to be this strong, you know, the declaration of God is dead and kind of this strong intellectualism that seemed to be associated with some form of atheism or something. And then, you know, and then a reaction, a kind of weird reaction to that, which attempted to kind of say, well, it's just all thought is bad. Uh, type of thing. And I think there's a way in which, yeah, I mean, the cross is not a story that you would tell to people, right? I mean, if you think in the culture of the day that think of the glorious heroes of the past. 
Think of uh, the glorious heroes that would have been recounted in the oral stories and in the histories. You, you think of your Iliads and your Odysseys. You think of even the Jewish stories to some extent, the ones where the great in battle win and their glory is displayed on the battlefield. Even if they're killed, you know, they're fighting with vigor and with almost godlike power. And the cross is such a contrary story to that. You know, to some extent, this narrative or the story of the cross here is something that really is not historically remarkable at all. That a common criminal would be executed as an insurrectionist against the imperial Roman army uh, or against, you know, kind of the infinite power of Rome. That, to some extent, would not even be really remembered. It would not be something that would be that big of a deal. And yet here Paul puts his finger on the fact that this is the way God moves. This is where God was present. This is where God is at work. This is where God is with us. One thing I think that tends to happen to us is in some sense when we start talking about the incarnation, this thing that is at the center of our faith where God becomes human in Jesus, we tend to associate that with some idea. That in some sense it's a concept or an idea that kind of in some weird way, maybe it's anti-intellectual or maybe it's highly intellectual, really makes the whole cosmos fit together. It makes everything make sense. As long as you get that piece of the puzzle, you've kind of got it. And in some sense, I think the way that we encounter it here with Paul is that the incarnation is not an idea. The incarnation is a person. That this person we encounter in Jesus is someone who asks for our loyalty. Someone who asks for our fealty, for our devotion. That this is the way God moves and that we are asked to participate, to go along with, to join in that type of movement. That this is where God works and that God enters the very base of creatureliness itself, uniting God's self with us taking creatureliness at its very lowest rung into the life of God. I don't think it's inconsequential, we've looked at some of these figures, that some of the saints like Francis in the church history who were so devoted to Jesus and the figure of Jesus also were so connected and found themselves so connected to those whose bodies did not fit the shape of the world that they lived in. We find in Francis, as we talked about this summer, someone deeply devoted to Jesus who then finds himself engaging with lepers, engaging the bodies of lepers. We find a Julia of Norwich who, while the bubonic plague is ravaging England, actually goes and takes care of the rotting bodies. That those people who have seen in Jesus this figure where the cross all of a sudden makes the reality of God known, that in some sense they are given or called or drawn to engaging with those bodies that look and are disfigured and are existing at the very bottom of creaturely reality itself. I would even think of one of our missional partnerships with reality. And in the way, kind of in a world of distrust, of competition, of this sense that your body must be kind of the perfect thing, that in some sense the incarnation, knowing that God has entered into creatureliness at its lowest form, 
then gives us the gentleness and the peace to enter into connection with bodies that don't quite fit exactly into what our culture says a body should do. That in some sense we're given more trust to engage. I think those of you that are kind of looking for a take-home message from how do you talk about the incarnation and what is the take-home message from something like that, I think it's, what if we began to view bodies the way that God did, the way that God does, or at least the way Paul tells us that God does? If we grasped that the undignified is where God's present, that God's not higher up on some infinite scale that reaches far, far above us that somehow we have to achieve or kind of go to, but that God is present and active in those people who seems like in our culture exist on the very bottom. The row where creatureliness seems to have reached its nadir. What would this do to our own view of the body? What would this do to our own sense of our own bodies? And how might it reconfigure our view of the body? That we might be those people who engage in gentleness and not conquest. You know, a lot of sociologists talk about kind of this gravity that we have to associate with people who are just like ourselves. But I think in the cross here, we find in some sense the power to actually engage across differences, to be drawn to those things that don't look exactly like us necessarily, don't function exactly like us. That in some sense, by being the people of God, by being captivated by God made known in Christ, is to draw us into connection with other bodies and other creatures in trust and not in fear. I think kind of in closing, too, one of the things that often happens to us, and this is where we kind of begin to flip toward the end of 1 Corinthians is that there's a dominant view in Christianity, and one I think that, well, it'd be a stretch to even call it Christian, but it holds a lot of cultural sway, that in some sense, the end for us will be leaving our bodies behind and our souls escaping someplace. That the future will be a disembodied soul, a soul that exists somewhere out beyond, freed from our bodies. But Paul's view in Corinthians is something rather different. His sense is that we are embodied souls, that we will stay as embodied souls. Now, those bodies will be radically changed. He talks about them being raised with Christ, raised in a resurrection that radically changes them as things that are now glorious, that were weak and are now empowered. And I don't think he has an idea of Maxim Magazine when he says that. I don't know exactly what he's talking about. I don't know if anybody knows what he's talking about. But in some sense, that the future for us is that we will still be embodied people. That Jesus doesn't shed the body, but that in Christ, our bodies, our humanness, our humanity, all the way down, is brought up and taken into the life of God. I don't know that it's exactly clear what this means for us in our bodies now, but I I do think it changes our hope. And maybe in some way by changing our hope, it actually gives us a way to begin to live in our bodies 
as those who connect to other bodies in our world. To know in some sense that our future is not about escaping the body, but that it is about a future with God as embodied people, that may give us hope, trust, love, and courage to engage the bodies that we find around us, to engage across differences, as I've said, to know that the lowly in the world are actually the hallowed in the kingdom, to know that where we see the undignified is actually where God might be most glorified, to take the time to engage with bodies, real bodies, that take time, that don't always function properly, that don't always move in the way that we would expect them to move. In some sense, I think this notion of incarnation is going to be the center of everything that we talk about in this series. I think we're going to keep coming back to it. I know in a lot of ways, I've thrown a lot at you tonight, there's a lot to think about, but I think there's a way in which we're going to keep coming back to it because this will be the center of how we as Christians and how the people of God think about what it means to be embodied about how we relate to our bodies and to the bodies of people around us. In some sense, the heart of the claim is that the body matters, that this world matters, that the things we connect to matter, and that God has taken up residence, not afar off, but in our creatureliness itself. As these guys kind of come back up, Uh, I think in some sense, the way Paul talks about the cross here is that it actually gives us power through the grace of God to be scandalous people, to be foolish and moronic people. In some sense, the incarnation gives us, or at least provides us, a way of trusting more than we probably should, of seeing statuses differently, of caring across differences, and also trusting that there's more about the future, more of the future for us as insold bodies than expecting that we can't wait to get outside of this material world. We're going to keep talking about that. Uh, In some sense, we're just kind of beginning a series tonight about looking on the body or looking at the body. But I think as we continue to read through 1 Corinthians throughout the next several weeks, this is a thing that's going to keep coming back to us. It's going to engage the way we talk about the church as the body of Christ, the way that we talk about our relations to one another. How about the divisions that so often infest our lives. To know that God is present in creatureliness, even at its very base, in some sense, is the beginning place for being reshaped as God's people and in God's grace.
I'm not entirely sure where my other musicians are. <laughs> Usually we have sight lines and they can tell when we're starting back. Maybe they'll hear the guitar. Yeah, it's the highway to hell. <laughs> great. I have a friend um, who I haven't seen in, in a number of years, but he, he wrote a song called Used to Could. And the whole chorus said, it seems the older I get, the more I know about used to could. <laughs> and I sort of think of that um, as Dan is sort of talking, sort, sort of the embodiment as we experience our bodies and space and time and, and the ways that we get let down by reality the way that sometimes life is just harder than we expected it to be similar to what we sang about with Red Dirt Girl uh, this is a song that I think of in certain ways in a similar way this is going to serve as our confession tonight uh, so let this be something that as you get a hang of it please sing along um, and experience sort of the weight of living in this world
one that I suspect we're going to all know a little more. I'd love for you to sing along.
seat or a pew in this case <laughs> for just a moment. Hey, we learned some stuff tonight, didn't we? Uh, for example, I think we heard a whack-a-mole illustration from Jim Thomas, which was kind of interesting. And, and I, I think I learned that Dan Rhodes was trying to meet girls when he was nine years old. <laughs> I wrote that down. I got like a big nine with a circle there. And uh, you might all want to keep a safe distance from that young man. Um, we also learned that um, Josh Busman has strange images of Lammy Jesus running through his head. And that might be a little more frightening than anything. In fact, I've had a few offices along the way. And I, I did in one station in Chapel Hill come into my office. And there literally was this white pasty Jesus straining to hold like a like a 20 pound lamb on his shoulders you know and the lamb was engulfing his body and it was uh, I was like I will I think I'll freak out if I have to sit under that photo a lot um and one of the things tonight that we 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 kind of brought to bear was this incredibly and, and 
and Dan set this up so well, this incredibly scandalous image of Jesus that is one that we're going to have to keep working our way through as we talk about bodies. So we didn't have Lammy Jesus, and, and I have, you guys know, my son Keenan is a, is a history geek, and he was home on fall break, and so I was kind of doing the, what parents do when you have a freshman, tell me about your classes, and what, you know, and with Keenan, it's a little bit of a dangerous thing to do, because I got about an hour lecture on the history of Greece. Apparently that is his <laughs> favorite class. I mean, we drove to Chapel Hill and back three times, and he gave me this kind of long image of these heroic figures that were, uh, you know, through Athens and Spartan, the, Sparta and all these places. And it's interesting that this image of Jesus in a very Greek and Roman and Jewish culture is not Lammy Jesus and it's not heroic figure Jesus. It's more like perp walk Jesus. And it's kind of like, where did that come from, so to speak? But we're going to kind of keep coming back to that image of what does it say about our bodies? Uh, I want to remind you of the kind of the four questions I threw out last week. Uh, one question was, what is your faith tradition? be it Christian faith or otherwise, has taught you about your body? What have you learned spiritually about your bodies from your faith tradition? And then the second question was kind of what is your society and the culture that you've lived in taught you about your body? So faith tradition and society. And then the other two questions we said we're going to work out a lot in this series. And Dan got us going on this one. And that third question is important. What does the physicality of Jesus say? This incarnate God in flesh thing say about our bodily lives? What does it say about that? And then the fourth question is how can we tell a counter story? How can we be transgressive? How can we tell a different story than the stories that have been told so often about our bodies? Um, And as we come to the communion table tonight, I want to remind you that we're already telling a counter story. Jesus' uh, uh, presence in the cultures that he lived was a radically crazy reality of God in flesh, God on a cross, all of these things. Um, Tonight, as we gather at the table uh, for bread and wine or juice, um, we're doing the thing that Jesus said, do this and this will help you remember me. Um, And isn't it interesting that the thing that was chosen was so physical and so earthly. We say this a lot, but as we come to the communion table, Dan, you asked a couple of great questions. One that I, I wrote down is, how do we live in our bodies And then how do we connect with other bodies? In this series, we're going to talk about kind of other bodies. How do we live in a world with gendered bodies and sexual bodies and raced bodies and all of these things? Um, But at the communion table, we're actually still practicing every week a response to that. When we take bread, when we take wine or juice, we're saying something that we don't like to say. We're saying that we're mortal people. We're saying that we are dependent on something, that we are not self-contained. We are not people who live, breathe, and have our being in and on our own, but we are dependent on being nourished. But as we do it every week in kind of the rowdy communion that we do, as we gather at the table and speak to each other and remember each other's lives and connect, we're reminding ourselves that that physical remembrance of God and God's presence in this world is deeply related to our connection to each other. And that in living that life out with each other, that is indeed where we experience not only the presence of God, but the presence of redemption, the presence of goodness, the presence of beauty, all of those things being redefined 
in terms of the fellowship of people who are trying to participate in this redemptive world that God is making for us. So I invite you to the table tonight. Uh, It's kind of a little farther back than usual, but it will be a a table you recognize. And I think we'll probably go in from the sides there. But to, again, as usual, break bread and pour wine or juice for each other, saying the body of Christ broken for you, saying it tonight with the deep recognition that that wasn't an abstract body. It wasn't an idea. It wasn't a crazy thing that didn't make a very good sermon 2,000 years ago, but a description of a broken body, God's broken body, broken for us. And the wine or the juice as blood poured out for us, that those are indeed deeply physical realities and realities that shape the living of our lives. One of the ways that we do that is by practicing an open table, the recognition that everyone in this room is invited to this table. Everybody is free to participate. There's no part of your physical life, no part of your who you are that excludes you from the table of Jesus. So I invite you now to enjoy the meal that we enjoy every week with the recognition that this is indeed a declaration of the physical God, a physical Jesus, us living in physical bodies. And over the next four or five weeks, we'll continue to work this out. This will be challenging. We don't have a million answers on these, but what does it mean to be embodied followers of God? And what does it mean in terms of our relationships? What does it mean in terms of the way that we see ourselves? So I invite you now to the table. I think you can come in from both sides and certainly uh, greet each other and uh, connect with each other as we do that. And thank you, Mark and guys, for just a brilliant job tonight. It's very appreciated.